please open your Bibles with me this afternoon to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. It's a great privilege to open God's Word with you today and, and also to grant Pastor Emilio some time to rest and preparation and as he's going to be going to California this week for the debate, Mr. Winger. We pray, as we have been praying, that God would use this opportunity as a means of, of grace for both our brother and for Christendom, the church of God in Christ, that this would be an opportunity for their growth and maturity to understand fully and more fully the glorious doctrines of grace, the truths of Scripture. So be in prayer for Pastor Emilio, be in prayer for Trish and Eden while he is away, and I covet and welcome your prayers for this week and next week, and our brother Brian is going to bring, be bringing some messages to you as well, but that in these messages, as we kind of depart a little bit from Isaiah, we're going to see some, just some glorious, I pray, glorious truths of Christ's work on our behalf and that we will, like Paul in this, learn what it is to exult in God. Amen. So let's read Romans chapter 5. We're going to read all first 11 verses today, but we're only going to go through, Lord willing, the first five verses. So Romans chapter 5, the glorious and eternal Word of God says to us here, Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that Tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Father, thank you for these eternal words, promises, foundations, sureties that are ours through the justifying work of Christ. And I pray and ask, Holy Father, that your spirit would 
come and work among us to open the full reality of these to us now in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our desires that we may truly, Father, exult in the hope of your glory, the glory of your name, who you are, all that you have done for us in and through Christ. May we find and know and stand upon our sure foundation in him alone. Bless this day to your glory, to the glory of your name, and to the good, to the strengthening, to the uplifting of the head to look and gaze upon you, to, to consider you, Lord, the object of our affection, of our hope, and the source of our faith. Thank you for this, Father, and this time in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you have read or aware of or have even studied in depth John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress. Amazing work, amazing allegory. It's the, the, the depiction, the story and depiction of the spiritual journey of Pilgrim or of Christian. And all the lessons, the perils, the dangers, the joys that he encountered from escaping the city of destruction in his pursuit, his journey through conversion, through the wicked gate unto the celestial city, a city of glorification. And if you remember in the first book, Christian came to the house of interpreter, which is representative of the Holy Spirit. And remember one particular room, which was very sobering, very shocking for Christian. It was the man in the iron cage, a depiction of the man who had professed to be a Christian, but had lost all hope and was despairing at the loss of God's forgiveness and salvation. Whether he was apostate, whether he was a true believer trapped in despair, Bunyan doesn't elaborate, but it is a great given to us as a great warning and to Christian. But did you know there's a second Pilgrim's Progress book? It's about his wife. It's called Christiana. And it's a story of her journey and her four boys from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And in a similar manner, interpreter, mercy actually brings her, but takes her to the house of the interpreter. And in this house of the interpreter, he shows her many, many lessons, many principles she's needing to learn and to, and to serve her well on her journey. And one in particular, with the most powerful application for us today, I believe, is this one room where she sees two men. One of the men in the room is looking down. Down upon the ground is using what's called a muckrake. Not something we hear of today, but it's used primarily in the cleaning of horse stables. I know I used to use one. But in, in Bunyan's time, it's used by one who is so focused scraping the ground, scraping the muck, searching for little twigs, little kindling, little things for immediate need. This man is always looking down. He's fixated on what he is doing, always busy in the muck, looking desperately for something of use and of value. But then there's a second man in the picture. Standing above him, and if you know this story, this is the image of Christ, 
holding a golden crown above the muckraker. He's offering him a trade. He's saying to the man, I'll give you this golden crown if you'll give me your muckrake. So what's the problem? He never looks up. He's so fixated on what he's doing and collecting straw and sticks, raking the muck and the dust, he's clueless to what's offered or being offered to him, and he never regards the crown that Christ is giving him. And the interpreter says this to Christiana and the boys. This is to let you know that earthly things, when they occupy people's minds, carry their hearts away from the Lord. And what Bunyan's conveying through the interpreter to Christiana to us is to take care, be very watchful. How many of us are like this in this position with muckrake in hand, fixated on the ground, on the earthly things, gathering the straw and the sticks, and all the while absolutely oblivious to the crown that is offered to us? Namely, here today, for the believer in this profound passage, we, may we see this crown. May we see, I pray, the glorious consequences of the doctrine of justification given to us by Christ. And how vast is the multitude of people around us so focused on the things of the earth, things of this temporal world, that that's all that seems to matter. One commentator on this passage says, very often, friends, we need to look up. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember the blessings that are ours in and through the gospel, that now we are are the sons of God. Yet it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's really the lesson of gospel logic to us. Look up, remember who you are in Jesus Christ. For it's God who offers and provides the the membership, the adoption into his family. It is God who offers and provides the heavenly treasures and the eternal pleasure in him. It's God who offers and provides this eternal crown of glory that will never fade away. God offers and will provide a renewed universe in which righteousness dwells in an eternity without pain, without sorrow, without sin, without death. And God offers and will provide the beatific vision whereby one, we may one day behold his glory in Christ Jesus. But most people never look up. Deliver us, Father, from, from the muckrake. And I exhort us, not only in this passage, but to, to spend time in the book of Romans as I've been reading through this and preparing and really not desiring to start from the very beginning and go through this, but F.F. F. Bruce commented on the whole book. He said, there's no saying what may happen to people when they study the letter to the Romans. I know even in our midst, this book has impacted several of you, several to even salvation, that through its gospel power, we've seen it shown and demonstrated in such, those such as, as Augustine and Luther. But it should never be a book that, it should be a book that we read through many times in the year. But for the next two Lord's Days, Lord willing, we're going to glimpse into one of the, just the revelatory sections of chapter 5. And the gospel reality for us to look up 
look at the gospel work of God that has been done on our behalf in justifying us, what it is to be justified before God, and more specifically, as I said, what are the consequences? What are the benefits, the good consequences, the exceptional results and realities for us in this new covenant through the justifying work of Christ? But central to to the full message of Romans and the work within the gospel that Paul is preaching on here, we find one of the core attributes or one of the core themes within this gospel, and that's what we see in chapters 3, verses 21, all the way to the end of chapter 4, which is what Paul describes is the doctrine of justification. In chapter 3, 21 to 31, he gives us somewhat of a concise examination, but a very profound explanation of what the doctrine of justification is that comes by faith in Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul gives really his defense of this doctrine. He knows, he he has experienced what the enemies are saying, what the attack is on this doctrine. So he sets up his defense. And then we come to these first 11 verses in chapter 5, we see Paul celebrating. He's really celebrating the doctrine of justification And what he says here, he says he exults in the glorious consequences consequences of this doctrinal truth, becoming and growing from, from being introduced into this positional grace and then the ongoing outworking of being justified by faith in Christ. It's no coincidence that Paul speaks of exulting here in three critical aspects. But before we look at these first five verses, I want to point out two two important details to work with here. The first detail we find in verse 1, the very first word, therefore. And that implies what? It it simply means that what Paul is about to say is, is connected so closely, so dependent upon, so directly on what he has just finished explaining in chapter 4 and all that Paul has described for us what we have identified all the way back from chapter 1, but specifically from chapter 321 to 421, his profound explanation and defense of this doctrine of justification. But he says, therefore, now I'm going to draw out for you all of these implications. I'm going to draw out all the glorious consequences revealing to us why this doctrine is so important for us, so important, so critical, and relevant to us as believers. The second detail, he uses this very profound phrase, we exult. That's in the NASB. We exult. If you're using the ESV, you're missing out. ESV says we rejoice. That's too weak. That's too weak. We exult three times. It's significant, I believe, because in ver- first in verse 2, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we exult in our tribulations. And finally, in verse 11, we exult in God himself. The significance here is that it's meaning we glory in, we actually boast in. Thomas Watson has, I think, the best definition here. He says, exultation is a ravishment that cannot be compressed. It's a ravishment that cannot be compressed. We glory, 
We glory, we glory, we exult, we exult, we exult is a triumphant elation in God. It is a leaping up of the soul and hope and the glory of God. This is what Paul is saying should be, must be the implications of the work of the justification we have in Christ. With these two details, we're going to discover what Paul is doing in these verses before us. He's celebrating here before us the spiritual realities that are the consequences of justification. Not to merely permeate our thinking, but deeply our understanding, causing our very souls to be lifted up in exaltation to God. We can't just think of this as a mere statement of fact or just part of his dictation to Tertius, but consider for a moment who's writing this. Paul isn't in some five-star hotel coming up with these things off the top of his head. This is persecuted. This is beaten. This is abandoned Paul. This is Paul who forsook and now considers dung all that he had as a Pharisee. And he's rejoicing now as the slave of Christ in the midst of his suffering for Christ because he is constantly proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Yet in this passage, we have an in-depth peek into the joy that's in his soul, the delight, the pleasure, the exultation he now knows and experiences through the gospel. He knows what these soul-satisfying consequences are that come by being justified through faith in Christ. And he wants this to be an experiential reality for us, not a topic of a dissertation or a thesis. But do we yet, and if not, may we begin to comprehend what is given to us in Christ. May we look up, may we highly esteem what has been granted to us. So speaking to those who are in Christ, Paul says to them and to us, beloved, right now in these 11 verses, there's seven amazing consequences that are to be known and to be experienced in our lives. We're going to only look at the first four today, Lord willing. The first of these is unwavering peace. Unwavering peace. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine expressed it best more than a millennium ago. He wrote in his confessions, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And to all dear brothers and sisters here today, we know now and we need to remember that we did not always have peace with God, did we? Before he justified us. We understand this now, but before Christ saved us, we struggled with two very significant problems. And these are not just significant now for the believer. If you are now here outside of Christ, not saved, not in Christ, these are especially significant for you because they still pertain to you. They are still very relevant to you. Go back with me a couple chapters to chapter one. We're going to read the reminder and hear this present day, present day proclamation God gives us in verse 18 of chapter one. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed in this present time. God's wrath is presently being revealed in our present day. This, is, this meaning is something that is being made evident. It's, it's revealed. This is where we get our word apocalypse. God's wrath is being revealed right now. And we can look just around the history of humanity and even our present condition of our own society right now, our own communities. Not looking very far, we see with the eyes of truth, according to God's word, we see the harsh reality of this truth that the wrath of God is revealed right now. But how is it revealed? How is it being revealed? Do, do we see it? Do we understand? And Paul continues to explain this all the way down through verse 32, but it's very simple. God punishes sin with sin. The reality of this is what should grip us and awaken us. The wrath of God is being revealed right now by punishing sin with sin. Let me, let me elaborate this. Just one example of several, and, and I say this with, with fear and trembling. Just look at the current agenda around us in the LGBTQ community, the gay agenda, the homosexual agenda, however they identify it. We, as believers, love the homosexual. We pray for them. We proclaim the gospel to them. We pray that by the grace of God, our Father would save them and rescue them from their sin. But as we look around us in our day at the rise of the homosexuality, this agenda, we see how strident it is now. The militancy of this agenda, how very blatant it is around us, almost more so every day. I shared with you what's happening right now in Cuba, their frontal attack to shut down the church and any support of the church there. But let's be very clear, homosexuality is God's punishment, the prevalence of this sin, as it says in Romans 1, this strident militancy that is behind this sin, the way it's being accepted in wider and wider circles. And listen, even in so-called evangelical circles this day, the acceptance and ever-expanding infiltration and infestation with no repentance testifies to the reality that God's wrath is now being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of sin. God's punishment in the suppressing of truth and unrighteousness is God's turning them over. Those in our society over the depraved desires of the heart. And we cannot get up and point our fingers and trumpet blast them because we are a part of the society and culture. But as those in humility, we observe what is going on around us and we lament at the prevalence of the sin in our society. But even more disheartening, we weep over the sin in our own midst. More discouraging and cause for greater tears, we weep over the sin in our own lives. For the hypocrisy in our hearts that's far too apparent. And we acknowledge this truth, this horrific truth, an undeniable reality that the wrath of God is being revealed right now. And for the believer here right now, except for the mercy and grace of God, we may have been left in our own sin and turned over. 
further revealing God's wrath. But also look over quickly at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, but because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul changes the tense of the verb here intentionally. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day. Speaking of the future, of that final day of judgment, that day of reckoning is coming when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Unless there is grace and mercy bringing repentance and faith in Christ, there will be wrath in the final judgment as well. But What I want to remind us, believer, this was our condition before God justified us. We did not have peace with God. Uh, We may have had at times some subjective feeling of tranquility, uh, a momentary state of calmness, and certainly you can have these as an unbeliever as well, but we did not have peace with God as recipients of his covenantal promise or his work within us or knowing the peace of God through Christ. And all of those, as I said, who are outside of Christ, who are not saved, if you do not have and and know faith in Christ, this precious gift that results in being justified before God, then you are, as we were, under his wrath, having no peace. And you now have his wrath focused on you. You are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, by nature, born of a sinful nature, with a sinful nature, and children of God's wrath. But for the believer, that was one of our very real positional realities before being justified. The other problem, very serious problem, was that we were hostile toward God. Because of our sin nature, and according to what Paul says of us in Romans 8, 7, having our mindset on the flesh, being hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God because you're not even able to do so. Our minds were at enmity, at opposition toward God, at dislike for God. This is sometimes a, a very huge pill for some to swallow. They, uh, they, they hear what Paul is saying here and they cognitively understand it, but the problem is they don't have or realize any outward hostility toward God. They say they don't have any harsh thoughts toward God or against God. They go along with the thoughts that, yeah, there is a God somewhere, somehow, but there's real no thoughts of hatred or rebellion. It just doesn't ring that way with them. So how is an unbeliever hostile toward God? The reason most people don't realize they're hostile toward God is that he isn't real to them. God isn't real to them, and he's not near to them. It's what we describe in this church, especially, as being in a covenantal relationship with him. And if God isn't real to you, your mind is hostile toward God, and you are not in a relationship with him. You are not near to him. You can think of it this way. Two people are in close proximity to each other, family members, neighbors, coworkers. And if they're at odds with each other, enmity each other, can't stand to be around each other, it's going to be evident. One of them moves across the other side of the world, 
that hostility subsides. It's not going to be as evident. That relationship just isn't there. That closeness, that hatred diminishes. So men in their natural state, their sinful carnal condition who says, I don't have any hostility toward God, it's because God is not real to them. If he made himself real to you, what would you do? Very likely you'd do the same thing others did. You'd nail his son to the cross. This is why Luther said we all carry the nails of Calvary around in our pockets. We carry the nails of Calvary around in our pockets that if given the opportunity that we saw just as we saw prior to the cross, we saw the depths of man's enmity toward the very Son of God, and in them we see ourselves if we care to look. Even if we say we don't feel it, If you don't feel it, then God isn't real to you. But listen, someday, and it may be very soon, he will be very real to you in the fullest display of his eternal glory and in final judgment. Remember, kids, what we talked about in Sunday school today, there is no second chance when he returns. We all struggle with this twofold problem. Some right here, right now, this day, may be struggling with these two very real problems. God's wrath toward you and our enmity and our hostility toward him. We're getting to the text, I promise you. But now look what Paul says to the believer in Jesus Christ. Just think about that for a moment. For the believer in Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith... The, the very act of God for us and to us, we now have peace with God. Both of these problems are gone. Wrath is gone. Hostility is gone. Now, that peace that Paul talks about, this word and reality for us, it means a binding together, a knitting together. That which had been separated through the chasm of sin is now bound together. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the means. This is why Paul uses the word dia. Verse 2, through whom also. Verse 9, through or by his blood and through him. Verse 10, through the death of his son. Verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom Jesus Christ alone is the means of this reconciliation. And this is what answers for us how this peace of God was established on our behalf. How was this peace of God affected to us? How did God in his infinite wisdom and power bring together these two warring parties? How did he reconcile himself to sinners? Those very creatures who were the object of his righteous wrath. And how did he reconcile those sinners to himself, those who hated him from the pit of their belly? The answer is through Jesus Christ and his justifying work on the cross, bearing the full enmity and wrath of God. At the cross, he bore our sin so that as we approach God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our complete legal status changes before God. He carried out the sentence of death for us, and the result of this carries for all eternity. We now have peace with God and Christ Jesus. God is now our friend and our Father. 
For us in Christ, God's throne is no longer a judgment seat, but a great mercy seat. In Christ, God is not a terrifying judge, but a loving Father. In Christ, God is not a condemning God, but a pardoning God. In Christ, God is not a threatening God, but a welcoming and accepting God. In Christ, we no longer have any reason to fear the sting of death, the terror of judgment, the terror of hell, or the wrath. Just think of the parable of the prodigal in Luke 15. How glorious and wonderful was that embrace of the Father. No condemnation. Where's the ring? Where's the robe? Where's the sandals? Where's the celebration lamb? Christ has absorbed it all, and he has left nothing for us to bear but his easy burden and his light yoke. Our peace with God is such that he now loves his people now as if he had never, we had never been the object of his wrath. So this is the first consequence, glorious consequence, peace with God through Jesus Christ. The second consequence, uninhibited access or unfettered access to God. Verse 2, through whom, through the Lord Jesus Christ also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul is describing the second consequence, the second benefit of our justification, and we have something slightly different here, something we have now as the children of God justified in his sight, something so good that we did not have before, unhibited access to the Father. Before God justified us, we did not have access to him. Romans 3.23 clearly tells us that as sinners, we had fallen short of the glory of God, completely missed the sacred mark. But now in Christ and through Christ, having him established, him having established our peace with God, we now stand when it comes to our relationship with God. Uh, please, I pray you'll see this as, as, we, as it is in the Greek, this continuous tense. We have all obtained by faith into this grace and continuous state in which we stand. The solid ground for us in Christ, no longer standing on ice that may give way or sand that shifts with the tides or even the ways of the world, no longer unstable or double-minded. We now stand on this sure foundation, this solid foundation, God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, we are not on shaky, uncertain ground, not knowing if or when we may lose our justification or our peace with God. Never. In Christ, we stand upon a solid foundation and God's grace to us as we approach God as our reconciled Heavenly Father. Hear this. In Christ, the sinful failings of our best actions are scrutinized, are, are not, excuse me, are not scrutinized by a severe judge but they're accepted by a loving Father. This is a precious truth to meditate on and believe upon and rest upon and live upon. It's okay for us to realize that we are but children when it comes to our Heavenly Father. We are but children and we now have access into His presence because we stand by faith into this truly amazing grace of God. 
And because of, of how we stand through Christ, we can draw near to God with comfort and confidence. In Christ, we can pray to God with boldness. In Christ, we cry out to God as children crying to their Father. And in Christ, we enjoy the liberties and privileges as children of God. And that is consequence or benefit number two, our inhibited access by grace. And the third consequence we also see in verse two, unchanging hope. Unchanging hope. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. We find in God all that we would ever want and ever need. All that we are lacking is satisfied in God. We live in anticipation of the day in which we will see God through Christ. The day in which God will reveal himself to the fullest capacity of our soul. We live in anticipation of the day when we will be like Christ and therefore able to commune with God. Nothing, nothing remaining to obscure, nothing to confound, nothing to hinder our enjoyment of God. Our knowledge of God will no longer be tainted by sin, but full, constant, and complete in the sense of an ever-growing joy and newness in the purity and presence of His eternal worth and glory. And all this resulting in an indescribable delight as we rest finally and fully in Him. We exult now in the hope of the glory of God. That this hope is a life-changing certainty which, which when it is birthed within us, it brings a stability to our lives, a sure foundation as, as to which we can stand. This, this hope we have in Christ, and this, this is worth a personal study for each of us, as it's seen throughout the New Testament, and this sure hope is compared to just a couple of things I want to look at in Scripture. One we've gone through, and Pastor Emilio went through 1 Thessalonians, but I want to remind us in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says that since we are of the day, of the light, of the truth, of those in Christ, we are to be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why? Because Paul knows that our hope rests in our understanding and comprehension of the promises of God. Paul knows very well, he's very painfully aware as a result of his own very real experiences, similar to many of those here, that the enemy of our souls will assault us and assail us where? If he can get the better of us here in our minds, in our thinking, in our thought patterns, in our processing of thoughts, he has us right where he wants us. And if he can get us distracted from our hope of the glory of God, if he can get us, keep us from looking up, get our attention off of our hope, our focus away from that which absorbs us in the hope of the glory of God, keeping us focused downward, the things that are terrestrial, temporal, fleeting, He'll have us right where he wants us and we'll be sitting ducks. So this hope is to be a divine helmet, a protection, a guard for our minds, provides stability that we can be and live and move and have our being enraptured in the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God, of all that awaits us 
And if, if you remember what Christ spoke of in the Beatitudes, of all that he has prepared for those who love him. And as these things occupy the mind, this hope lends stability in the mind in our lives. Hebrews 6.19 is another example. I'm not going to go into it as deep, but hope here is like an anchor. In the midst of a storm, in the torrents of life, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within or inside the veil, the glory of God. But how does this hope function? Hope, if if fixed on what will be, not on what is around us or just merely circumstantial, but hope is fixed on what will be, it will be fixed, just as Pastor Miller talked about at the beginning, on the return of Christ. It will impact our eschatology. Fixed on the resurrection from the dead. Fixed on the full and final deliverance from sin. Hope is fixed on the renovation of the entire cosmos. And hope makes the future, this future certainty, a very present reality for us. Comforting us, strengthening us, stabilizing us in the daily walk and encounters of this world. And it is a great protection against the enemies of our mind and our souls. And this hope is immune to every illness. Every cancer, every Ebola attack, even a stock market crash or hurricanes or tornadoes. It is immune to every grief and worry and challenge and every loss, the hope of the glory of God. And that is our third glorious consequence. And finally, we come to the fourth benefit or consequence of our justification by faith in Christ. It is unparalleled joy. Unparalleled joy. Paul says something in verse 3, and if you're in a way like me, I'll confess. He's something, he says something here I kind of wish he would maybe skipped over or bypassed, and, but he says by the Spirit of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Because of all this, we also exult in our tribulations. We glory in our sufferings. And this may seem bizarre. It may sound strange. We, to, we are to exult a ravishment that cannot be compressed even in our suffering. Now, Paul does not mean in any way that we are to rejoice because of suffering or on account of suffering or even in suffering. He's not suggesting for any moment that we derive any kind of satisfaction or joy or pleasure from suffering in and of itself. Now, Paul's point is that we exult in our sufferings. Why? Because we comprehend in the light of the doctrine of justification. We, of all people, should comprehend and understand that suffering simply begins what you might call a a chain reaction in our soul, in our life. It's part of how we are sanctified and our character is transformed to the likeness of Christ. You, You can kind of picture this maybe like dominoes that you stack up vertically and watch them fall. It could be seen like a a rocket, multiple stages in a rocket, projecting us, propelling us toward heaven. But if, if so, one of those works with you, you know, the first domino to fall or the first stage here in verse three, he says, 
And not only this, not only do we have peace with God, not only an introduction by faith into the grace and now exult in the hope of the glory of God, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Knowing that this, tri- this tribulation, that tribulation, that suffering will bring about perseverance. It brings about endurance. But the meaning here is, is better rendered as a single-mindedness in this context. Not narrow-mindedness, but a single-mindedness. And what Paul is saying here is that what suffering produces for those who are justified in God's sight, suffering produces this godly single-mindedness. It causes us to focus. We begin to focus and to see and distinguish more clearly and to differentiate between what is really important and what isn't. Think for a moment. There's been many dear brothers and sisters who have suffered in this, in this body, suffered well, but in your own life, when you're facing a cancer diagnosis, your boss comes in with a pink slip, when a spouse suddenly dies, whatever suffering comes our way, that it will reveal this quickly unless we are carnally minded. Suffering has this great design, this great purpose in the life of the believer to cause us to focus. The narrowing of our attention, all of a sudden bringing into clarity, this is important and this is not. And, and what Paul is after here in, in this production, this working of single-mindedness, and what Paul calls endurance or perseverance, it leads in this chain reaction into verse 4, and perseverance, proven character. Paul, Paul is saying the second reaction, the second purpose of suffering in this chain from single-mindedness to proven character means referring to a confidence, not, not a self-confidence, but a confidence that arises over time and with experience with both the trials and the abundances in life. It's called maturity. It's how the Lord matures us. And a very simple illustration that I could think of is, is like a sports competition. I'm not going to play favorites here. But somebody goes to the Super Bowl many times. They have been champions. They know what the suffering, what the preparation, all that is entailed to win this final event. They develop a maturity. They develop an experience, what they have suffered through. And they have an advantage over the team that's never been there. This is the idea here. Suffering produces endurance, a single-mindedness. This produces character, a maturity, an experiential confidence of having been through this suffering. And it's intentional to lead to this next reality in the chain, also in verse 4, and proven character, hope. Now, why does this proven character, this maturity and experiential confidence produce hope? How, How does it come back? to hope again. It, it, it produces hope in us because in this process, in this life experience for those in Christ, this is special, this is unique, this is not for everybody. It is going back to our mind and our thinking and our realization that it is God who brought me through this. It is God who sustained me through this. It is God who worked on me and in me through this. God has proven himself to be faithful in this or that. 
And this enlarges our hope. Why? Because if God did that for me in this suffering, then he most assuredly will do all that he has promised. All that he has promised. Because he brought me through that, because he lifted me through that, because he afflicted in this particular instance and taught me and worked on me. And yes, it was painful, but I see how he brought me through that and brought me back. It testifies to his faithfulness. And being because he is faithful, I have every confidence in looking forward in the hope of the glory of God because my hope is enlarged, it is quickened, it is set aflame. Why? Because this experiential reality and my confidence grows as to what awaits me in the future. And one final domino in this glorious work in this chain is our hope, verse five, and hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't leave us stranded. This is so because God's love has been poured out within our hearts. There's a danger to misunderstand this verse, to take it out of context, and that's where it's been typically dangerously used. What this looks like is when people take just this verse and say, well, God has poured out his love in my heart, and I'm just waiting for this warm, fuzzy, sentimental, the Spirit's going to give me this tranquility, this cuddly feeling, some big celestial hug, and I'll just feel the love of God. But the context is that this hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint. It is part of a chain reaction, an intentional divine chain of sanctifying progression in us because as we experience suffering, at least to perseverance, at least to single-mindedness, where we can see and differentiate between what is important, what is not, and as we do this, we grow an experience of this, producing maturity, character, and experiential confidence that arises from testing and trials. And as this is happening in our lives, our hope is enlarged even more, and we fixate on those promises that God has given us even the Spirit of God that he has given to us, who is within us. And as these promises are revealed to us through the Word of God and the ministration of these promises to us, he heightens our awareness, therefore, of just how much God loves us, just how much has been poured out within our hearts. Undeserving sinners that were under the very wrath of a triune holy God now has poured out his love within our hearts. And in this we rejoice, we exult in our sufferings because in our suffering and all that we experience in it from endurance to character to hope we are experiencing as the word of God is implanted within and as God's promises become so very real, so very sure to us we are experiencing firsthand the love of our Heavenly Father, which has been poured out. This is a call for unparalleled joy. This is a beautiful perspective Paul's giving us here. We're to have a very proper, a very humble, a very holy, divine perspective when examining, exploring these truths of God's salvific and justifying work to us that he has done in us by faith in Jesus Christ. Far too often, 
Where is our perspective? It's down. We're, we're in the midst of our muckrake. And we forget. Sometimes we don't even want to look up. But we need to look up. We need to understand and believe in the great consequences, the great benefits. Believe these truths that are, are, are our eternal consequences that flow to us from justification. Unwavering peace, uninhibited access, unchanging hope, and unparalleled joy. Piper said in his famous message on Don't Waste Your Life, he says, rejoicing and suffering, even experiencing death, he said that our treasuring Christ and rejoicing in our suffering proclaims the wondrous truth that Christ is more precious to you than all that life can give and all that death can take from us. So true. May we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Father, thank you. Thank you for these eternal truths, these eternal promises that are ours in Christ for the very justifying work that you have done through the righteousness and blood of Christ by faith that you have even given us to believe in these things, to awaken our souls to life, to hope, to truth, to the very glory of your presence and your word. We give you all praise and thanks. And Father, I pray that these glorious consequences would resonate in our soul, that we would look up, Father, let go of the muckrake, have a single-mindedness on what is important, what is critical, what is eternal, what is glorious to you, Father. Because with that, with the love that has been poured out in our hearts, our love for the lost, our love for one another, our delight in you, the very work of our hands and our vocations and our service will be a delight, Father, will be unparalleled joy because it all comes from you, it is all through you, and it is all to you. So thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you would write it upon our hearts to the glory of your holy name. Amen.